0: Welcome to an exciting forum of alternative viewpoints and balanced ideas. This is Good Morning Canada with Nav and Nav. That's Nav C and Nav M. Confused? Don't be, because two halves always become one. Now join us for an energized hour of global viewpoints and shared ideas, only for you. Now, here are your hosts, Nav and Nav. Hello, and welcome to Good Morning Canada. I'm your host, Navem, and welcome to another hour of Alternative Viewpoints. The crisis of managing damaged relations between Russia and the West, which have escalated due to the Ukraine invasion of February 2022, are portrayed by Western powers and the political media establishment as solely a Russian problem and blamed on the authoritarian policies pursued by President Vladimir Putin. However, the West has played a significant and active role in eroding this relationship ever since the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991 by clearly ignoring Russian policy concerns and attempting to take advantage of Russian weakness during this critical period. Recent actions by US-led Western powers aimed at targeting Russia through economic sanctions have not only created major problems for itself, such as a looming energy crisis, but have also made any diplomatic solution to the ongoing military tragedy in Ukraine increasingly unlikely. As the American poet, novelist, and literary critic Robert Penn Warren noted in his 1946 novel, All the King's Men, quote, Reality is not a function of the event as an event, but of the relationship of that event to past and future events. This insightful quotation is a useful starting point in lifting the lid on the origins of the present Ukraine conflict, because providing context helps us examine the eastern expansion policy of both NATO and the European Union, and how it evolved after 1991, edging ever closer towards legitimate spheres of Russian influence. During the early stages, Moscow tolerated this process by disregarding the so-called near a broad concept and instead focused its efforts on key foreign policy initiatives such as gaining political acceptance by the West and attempting to integrate into its economic institutions. So let's begin this episode with the end of the Cold War period in 1989. At that point Europe was faced with two potential pathways during the early post-communist era. The first was outlined by the last president of the USSR Mikhail Gorbachev, who argued for a continent in which a diverse mix of social systems coexisted. In a speech to the Council of Europe in Strasbourg on 6 July 1989, Gorbachev spoke of a common European home stretching from the Atlantic to the Pacific, thus giving voice to the aspiration for pan-European unity that has often been referred to as a greater Europe. Gorbachev's idealistic project was to integrate the Soviet Union as an equal partner of Western powers in a new political infrastructure, while remaining steadfastly committed to a more open form of democratic socialism. For him, this unique juncture of the Cold War did not mean that the Soviet Union would automatically duplicate the political system of the West. Instead, his interpretation and of his future successors was that Russia would remain an independent sovereign power in international affairs with greater emphasis on a cooperative spirit. And in an eerie foreboding of the current crisis in Ukraine, Gorbachev's Common European Home speech in 1989 warned that the states of Europe belonged to different social systems and admitted that there was uncertainty about, quote, the new architecture of our common home. Conversely, the second pathway was one advocated by the United States. Indeed, from their viewpoint, a new epoch was unfolding, which then-President George H.W. Bush was pursuing. He was trying to regain the ideological initiative by advancing the idea of a new world order based on enlargement rather than transformation. In his speech at the Aspen Institute on August 2, 1990, President Bush referred to a new national strategy and a new structure for the armed forces of the United States, given the radical changes which had occurred in the Soviet Union and Europe. And according to Bush's Aspen speech, the New World Order demanded major changes in the planning and organization of US military power. Hence, from this critical juncture of the Cold War, we observe a fundamental difference in international outlook, the bold brashness of the first Bush administration compared to the embracing idealism of Gorbachev. Moreover, the Olive Branch, extended by the former Soviet Union, was a response to key challenges that still remain unresolved to this day. And this is evidenced by the highly complex geopolitical issues facing the current Russian Federation and its president, Vladimir Putin, whose foreign policy has been formulated by a more pragmatic approach based on U.S.-led NATO expansion. Interestingly, the end of the Cold War marked not only the transformation of a new international system, but also the starting point of the current conflict and war in Ukraine. By late 1989, there was no political innovation in terms of European security and development. Instead, the existing Atlantic institutions, namely NATO and the European Community, witnessed a process of steady enlargement which was also accompanied by a rationale of self-aggrandizement, by claiming the dubious title of victor of the Cold War. Indeed, Russia was not offered access to a greater West, but membership of the historical West on strictly subordinate terms. And there appeared to be no place for Russia in the triumphant Atlantic system, clearly not as an equal. Given the enormous disparity in power and resources at the end of the Cold War, Russia's effective exclusion from global security arrangements initially did not appear to be a problem because of its weakened state. Jack Matlock, the U.S. ambassador to the USSR between 1987 to 1991, noted in his 2010 book, Superpower Illusions, How Myths and False Ideologies Led America Astray. The quote, quote, too many American politicians looked at the end of the Cold War as if it were a quasi-military victory rather than a negotiated outcome that benefited both sides. mythmaking began almost as soon as the Soviet Union fell. Matlock believes this led to a fatal triumphalism among the Western powers and a grossly distorted viewpoint that the Cold War ended two years before the Soviet Union actually collapsed and it was Western military pressure that defeated communism rather than Mikhail Gorbachev's initiatives. And this is a key point to note when searching for the origins of the ongoing conflict in Ukraine because Russia as the continuous state of the Soviet Union has a fair claim to being a co-founder of the post-Cold War European and global order. Russia firmly believes that it was not defeated in the Cold War but instead it was a shared victory. This viewpoint is consistent with the work of the late international scholar of Russian history and politics, Professor Stephen Cohen. In his 2009 book, Soviet Fates and Lost Alternatives, from Stalinism to the New Cold War, he argues that the Cold War would have continued unabated had it not been for the vision of Mikhail Gorbachev. He also remarks that the end of the Cold War was cynically negotiated so that the Western powers were hailed as virtuous winners. Essentially, the Cold War ended for Moscow but continued in Washington, thus creating a unipolar order from which Moscow was sidelined from the outset. The post-Soviet peace was lost and a new Cold War was unleashed, originating not in Moscow but in Washington, starting with the Clinton presidency of the 1990s. Cohen firmly believed that the New Cold War was largely the responsibility of the Western powers who failed to overcome the entrenched biases of the original conflict. The work of eminent scholars such as Stephen Cohen shed light on a well-documented fact that global crises always erupt on existing fault lines of the international system. These fault lines are already established but their significance and influence change over time according to the State of International Relations. For example, the fault lines within Central and Eastern Europe are heavily linked to the decline and fall of pre-World War I dynasties such as the Austro-Hungarian, Ottoman and Russian empires. Long-standing regional conflicts which had previously troubled Europe emerged after 1991 which had temporarily been masked by the existence of the Soviet Union. Similarly, the current crisis in Ukraine illustrates the age-old problems with borders that have never been truly settled and a population that is not homogenous. Many Central and Eastern European countries are in effect multinational states reflected in their language or ethnicity. In the same way that nationalism is also expressed throughout a variety of states. This highly nuanced relationship between sovereign territory and national identity led various multinational states to revisit issues of unfinished ethnic and political rivalry after the collapse of the Soviet Union. Furthermore, the West adhered to their policy the familiar borders created after the turmoil of World War I should be respected largely from fear created by the consequences of the collapse of the Soviet Union. This was present in the so-called velvet divorce of the Czech Republic and Slovakia and more forcefully during the breakup of Yugoslavia, particularly the ethnic conflict between Serbia and Kosovo in 1999. Indeed, this conflict marked a fundamental change in the rationale for modern military intervention with its perceived goal of alleviating humanitarian distress and protecting vulnerable minorities. It changed the principles of non-interference in the internal affairs of another sovereign state, while also redefining the principle of self-determination in international relations. More importantly, it was a key moment in Russia's disenchantment with post-Cold War security arrangements and its strong emphasis on restructuring the wider European state. This paved the way for Many post-Communist states to consider joining NATO and the EU for security and economic reasons, but was viewed by Russia with suspicion and increased misgivings. By 1990, no formal pledges had been made to accept former Communist countries as part of a specific plan to enlarge NATO. That's because the dominant issue at the time was whether a unified Germany would actually be part of NATO itself. The wider question was not raised until much later in 1997. Potential Russian unease at this development was clearly recognized but NATO sought to resolve the complex issue of closer military ties through its Partnership for Peace program. But this was insufficient to satisfy many Soviet satellite states that feared they might be incorporated into the new style of Russian Federation, especially in the absence of the US-led NATO alliance. In return for its compliance, Russia was given privileged opportunities such as recognition as an international partner into the newly formed G8 group of leading industrialized nations. However, this did little to quell the concerns and growing irritation of President Putin. In a speech to a largely NATO audience in 2007, he described the alliance's expansion as, quote, a serious provocation that reduces the level of mutual trust. But by this time, anxiety about Western encroachment into sensitive Russian affairs had been confirmed by the 2003 Rose Revolution in Georgia and the 2004 Orange Revolution in Ukraine, when unpopular and corrupt governments succumbed to popular demands and street protests. President Putin was deeply troubled by the potential of these color revolutions being replicated in Russia, and subsequently, this accounted for a strong authoritarian approach by Putin in relation to domestic politics. This included, for example, attempts to marginalize and expel opposition politicians and crackdown on overseas NGOs. The fear of contagion from the color revolutions was compounded by an expression of nationalist responsibility for those Russian minorities that had been left stranded as Russia's borders diminished after 1991. These regions included Transnistria, a strip of land on Moldova's border with Ukraine. Also, South Ossetia and Abkhazia, which are breakaway territories of Georgia. And, of course, the Donbass region in eastern Ukraine, which includes the regions of Donetsk and Lugansk. So, having introduced the context behind the present standoff in international relations between Russia and the United States, In the next section, I'd like to introduce a key theme which helps to explain the rapid decline in bilateral relations while also shedding further light on the ongoing military conflict in Ukraine. And this is the complex dilemma of security interests between Russia and the United States. Many aspects of the post-Cold War relationship between the two countries can be viewed as a dilemma of security interests where each side perceives a serious threat from the other and takes countermeasures that create further insecurity for its adversary. Since the outbreak of war on February 24, 2022, bilateral ties between Russia and the United States have deteriorated to what appears to be a point of no return, given the scale of economic sanctions imposed on Russia by Western powers. In addition to the tit-for-tat personal sanctions imposed on politicians and leaders from the respective countries. However, if we take one step back from the destruction, bloodshed and killing created by the armed conflict, we notice that over the past three decades, the major threats for Russia have been the following points. America's advantage in conventional weaponry, NATO's eastward expansion and the accompanying threat of regime change, which exists under the guise of democracy promotion. On the other hand, for the United States, the primary security threats are the following points. Russia's program of nuclear weapons modernization. Russia's alleged attacks on the American system of democratic government via the narrative of Russiagate. Its alleged willingness to violate the sovereignty of neighboring states. Its support for rogue regimes which are deemed unacceptable to the United States and the developing Russian partnership with the US's main rival, China. So how did the dilemma in security interest between Russia and the US become so acute? Interestingly, US-Russian relations after the Cold War appeared to offer great promise. Russia had abandoned its empire in Eastern Europe. The country was transitioning towards a market-oriented democratic system and Russia no longer posed a military threat to American security. However, during the past 30 years, each period of optimism has been followed by a disappointing decline in relations. The initial warm partnership between then-US President Bill Clinton and Russian President Boris Yeltsin gave way to suspicion due to steady NATO expansion and subsequent military intervention in the Balkans. As a result, President Vladimir Putin's initial support for the American campaign against terrorism in 2001 waned after the Bush administration's intentions of regime change in Iraq 2003. Relations reached a new low with President Putin's 2007 Munich Security Conference speech. This condemned the United States unilateral policy of unrestrained power and its use of force to achieve its national security objectives. Moreover, the Obama administration's infamous reset in US relations with Russia was put under immense strain by NATO intervention in Libya in addition Secretary of State Hillary Clinton's open support for the white revolution in Russia from 2011 to 2012 and Ukraine's Euromaidan uprising in 2014 resulting in Russia's annexation of Crimea And the beginning of US imposed sanctions collectively led to a downward spiral in relations. So, now let's turn our attention to the unavoidable question, which will set the tone for the remainder of this episode. What explains the mutual hostility and suspicion that have characterized US Russian relations over the past two to three decades? Many experts in international affairs have put forward various explanations for the deterioration in bilateral relations, and broadly speaking, they can be divided into two categories. The first argues that Russia is a latent imperialistic power with historically aggressive intentions, and under President Putin, has now returned to a familiar pattern of regional confrontation. The second explanation directs most of the blame on the United States, citing Washington's policy of unilateralism in the aftermath of the end of the Cold War, and its wholesale disregard of Russian national interests. Undoubtedly, both countries bear some responsibility for the poor state of relations, but ultimately the US-Russia relationship is defined by an overarching theme, as mentioned earlier. And this is the dilemma of security interests in which defensive actions undertaken by one side increase the opposing side's insecurity. And that's because both Russia and the United States are arguably defensive realist powers. Realism in international relations is a discipline which emphasizes the competitive and conflicting nature of global politics. It's usually contrasted with idealism which focuses on cooperation. Realists consider the principal players in the international arena to be states which are concerned with their own security and therefore act in pursuit of their own national interests and struggle for power. The negative side of the realists' focus on power and self-interest is their scepticism about the relevance of ethical norms when analysing relations between particular states. And in the case of Russia and the US, each side is fearful of the other's intentions. Neither understands the security imperatives of their rival and both engage in behaviour that undermines the other's security. In recent years, certain factors have underscored the relevance of realism as a philosophical school of thought, which helps to explain the heightened uncertainties and greater potential for conflict. For example, these include the decline of American hegemony, the decline in influence of international institutions such as the United Nations, the rejection of arms control agreements, and the return of great power rivalry. In the following section, I will focus on explanation two of this unavoidable question. And advocates of this second explanation direct most of the blame of the ongoing Ukraine crisis at the door of the United States, largely due to its policy of unilateralism and a reckless disregard for Russian national interests. The main reason for focusing on the latter explanation is because it represents a clear alternative viewpoint to the barrage of bias reporting offered by mainstream Western media accounts since the Ukraine conflict first came to prominence from two thousand thirteen to fourteen. I tend to focus on the arguments put forward by two leading proponents of the realist approach firstly, the late Stephen Cohen mentioned earlier and eminent historian, also Professor Emeritus of Russian Studies and Politics at New York University and Princeton University. Secondly, John Mearsheimer, who is currently R. Wendell Harrison, Distinguished Professor of Political Science at the University of Chicago, where he has taught since 1982. Firstly, Stephen Cohen. He was part of a unique generation of Russian scholars that emerged during the 1960s, challenging stereotypes about the Soviet Union. They criticized the West's hardline approach to U.S.-Russia policy framework and believed that constructive engagement with Moscow would eventually trickle down as a reformist movement in the Soviet leadership. Scholars like Cohen supported the easing of Cold War tensions between the U.S. and the Soviet Union between 1966 to 79, a policy which became known as detente. Cohen was one of the historians who revised perceptions of the Soviet past in order to change attitudes about the Soviet present. Professor Cohen believed that the USSR would have built true socialism had it not been for the influence of Joseph Stalin. During the 1970s the recommendations of scholars such as Cohen appeared to resonate in Washington but the situation changed drastically when President Richard Nixon resigned in 1974 and the value of any future soviet-american alliance came under intense scrutiny. Nixon had been a fierce advocate of detente but this policy was abandoned by later president Jimmy Carter. From this point on Stephen Cohen devoted much of his work to the promotion of the idea of rapprochement or establishing cordial relations between the two countries. During the late 1990s, Cohen focused attention on the mistakes committed by the White House in the aftermath of the dissolution of the Soviet Union after 1991. Cohen believed that Russia's historical experience was unique from the West, demanding a practical and more fairer analysis of the situation. As such, Cohen defended and justified policies adopted by Vladimir Putin, arguing that they were a natural response to the political conditions imposed by the United States. In his 2019 book, War with Russia, From Putin and Ukraine to Trump and Russiagate, Stephen Cohen argued that the new Cold War had become more dangerous than the previous one due to the following reasons. Firstly, the peace movements calling for detente are missing. The rational argument to dissuade against nuclear war is absent. Civility towards Moscow's leadership is non-existent democratic discourse and journalistic standards have diminished. And the absence of a buffer zone in Eastern Europe has been removed because of Russia's diminishing borders. And almost three decades after the end of the Cold War, the credibility of political leaders in Washington is measured by the extent to which they are tough on Russia. Indeed, blaming Russia for the breakdown in US-Russian relations has been very popular among American Politicians across the political spectrum, including the late Senator John McCain, Hillary Clinton, and Conservative Hawk John Bolton, among others. In addition, a number of foreign policy and Russia specialists have cited Russian actions as the main cause for poor relations. Notable protagonists include Anne Applebaum, a Pulitzer Prize-winning historian and senior fellow at the John Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies. Other outspoken critics of Vladimir Putin include Garry Kasparov, chess grandmaster and former world chess champion. Many of President Putin's detractors will often cite a lengthy list of reasons as evidence of Russian state aggression or czarist imperialist revisionism and open hostility towards the United States and its allies. And this list includes the following the confrontational Munich speech of 2007, the Russia-Georgian war of 2008, the Kremlin's annexation of Crimea and involvement in destabilizing southeast Ukraine, the Sergei Skripal poisoning, murders of Russian journalists, disinformational warfare, alleged interference in the 2016 U.S. presidential sure. elections, a revisionist Russian foreign policy aiming to restore influence over the former states of the Soviet Union, which represents a new form of re-imperialization, domestic militarism, and ambitions in the Middle East and the Arctic. As a result of this long list of hostile and aggressive behavior, Stephen Cohen believes diplomacy is almost certainly dead in the water, as liaison with Russia has become a modern-day version of McCarthyism due to Washington's warlike demonizing of the Kremlin leadership and the allegations from Russiagate. Comments by former US President Donald Trump that getting along with Russia would be a good thing, not a bad thing, has been interpreted as pure treason. And the public debate is quickly shut down if anyone not conforming to the neo-McCarthyist vilification of Russia are labeled as either traitors or Putin apologists. In the Western media, Russia is crudely depicted as a reincarnation of the Soviet Union and President Putin as a new version of Adolf Hitler. Stephen Cohen believes that the US has deluded itself by believing it is under attack from Russia and should therefore retaliate, while responsible voices calling for restraint have been shamed and silenced, including Cohen himself. Russiagate and the Putin-Trump collusion still dominate the media years after the story first surfaced and have been accepted as a fact is by no evidence produced. Cohen deconstructs the, the main narrative being pushed by Washington's information machine, which suggests the following argument, that the U.S. offered friendship to Russia in the 1990s while on its path to democracy and membership in the European family of nations. However, the partnership was apparently disrupted by the rise of President Putin's imperial ambitions, in particular his rejection of a Western-dominated liberal order in favour of a nationalist authoritarianism at home, while pursuing revisionist adventurism abroad. The net effect of this approach was to wreck Ukraine's ambition of joining the Euro-Atlantic community. However, Cohen contests this narrative by arguing that relations between the West and Russia unravelled primarily when NATO began its expansionist policy to the East followed immediately by its bombing campaign in Serbia and the forcible detachment of Serbia's historical province of Kosovo. The Western-backed colour revolutions in Georgia and Ukraine from 2003 to 04 were clearly linked to NATO membership, which was promised again in 2008, followed by war in in Georgia. Cohen also demonstrates that the narrative of the political media establishment very rarely mentions these facts. Similarly, reporting of the Ukraine narrative beginning in 2014 has been distorted in terms of key events that led to and followed the Western Bat coup there. Cohen also argues that a partnership with Russia is imperative to address the key security challenges for the United States, particularly nuclear proliferation. Instead of addressing shared security challenges, Cohen believes that the new Cold War has made the U.S. ally itself with established neo-Nazi movements in Ukraine. Furthermore, following the election of President Donald Trump in 2016, Cohen argues that there was hope for improved relations. Trump's attempts to challenge the mistakes made during the 1990s to liaise with Russia marked a break from previous policy framework. However, propagation of the Trump-Russia collusion story simply intensified the new Cold War and labeled Russia as a convenient scapegoat in American domestic politics. Cohen argues that previous restraints have been abandoned as Russia stands accused of launching an attack on the US, and anything short of a retaliation is described as a Munich-style appeasement, similar to the Red Scare of the 1950s. The political media establishment also sees the pervasive presence of Vladimir Putin behind every populist election and referendum across the Western Hemisphere. And in the next section, I'll be focusing on the other leading voice of dissent against the mainstream view of Russia as sole aggressor in the Ukraine crisis, which is Professor John Mearsheimer. Like most international relations scholars of his generation, Mearsheimer was deeply influenced by Columbia University's Kenneth Waltz, the founder of the school of international relations known as neorealism. And while classical realists explained international conflicts as a desire by political leaders to increase power, neo-realists such as Walt sourced the origins of war as the basis of international relations. In Waltz's model, the absence of an authority above state level means adopting a defensive position towards rival competitors through alliances to preserve the balance of power and maintain security. Mearsheimer presents a slightly different view, arguing that the need for security and hence survival makes states aggressive power seekers. Therefore, states will only cooperate in temporary alliances by pursuing the erosion of their competitors' power to maximize their own. And because states cannot predict the present or future intentions of other states, he concludes that it is rational for them to preempt acts of aggression by enhancing their military strength and adopt an assertive position whenever their core security interests are at stake. Professor Mearsheimer sets out his views on the causes of the Ukraine crisis in an article which first appeared in the magazine Foreign Affairs on August 18, 2014, entitled Why the West is to Blame for the Ukraine Crisis. He argues that the current Ukraine crisis is largely the West's fault because any great power faced with the looming threat of an expanding military bloc such as NATO approaching its borders would react similarly to Russia. But as mentioned previously to counter Meersheimer's argument, Russian detractors have devised a long list of reasons which explain Russian state aggression and from the Ukrainian perspective, Perspective, the ousting of democratically elected Ukrainian President Viktor Yanukovych in February 2014 was simply a pretext for Russian invasion to seize the Donbass region of Ukraine. However, according to Professor Meersheimer, this viewpoint is incorrect because the United States and its European allies share most of the responsibility for the crisis, the root cause of the problem being NATO's eastward expansion, which represents a long-term strategy to pry Ukraine out of Russia's sphere of influence and integrate it into the West. And to make matters worse, the EU has also embarked on a program of eastward expansion at the same time, which also coincides with Western support of the pro-democracy movement in Ukraine, starting with the Orange Revolution in 2004. Unsurprisingly, Russia has vehemently opposed NATO expansion and in recent years made it abundantly clear that they would not stand by while their strategically important neighbor was turned into a western bulwark. And for President Putin, the illegal overthrow of Ukraine's democratically elected and pro-Russian president, which he correctly labeled as a coup d'etat, represented the final straw. In response, Russia responded by annexing Crimea, which he believed would host a NATO naval base and ever since 2014 has pursued a policy of destabilization in Ukraine until it abandons its efforts to join Western institutions and their subsequent sphere of influence. Mirsheimer believes President Putin's retaliation and eventual evasion of Ukraine should have come as no surprise because, after all, Western powers have been encroaching in Russia's backyard and threatening its core strategic interests a point which Vladimir Putin emphasized repeatedly in the years prior to the invasion of 2022. According to Mearsheimer, the political and military elites in the United States and Europe were blindsided by the events of 2014, simply because they believed in a flawed view of international relations, advocating that Europe could be kept independent and free, based solely on the liberal principles of the rule of law, economic cooperation and democratic values. But their fatal mistake was to believe that the logic of realism held little relevance in the 21st century. But this grand plan unraveled in Ukraine in February 2014 because the United States and its European allies attempted to turn an insignificant state into a western staging post directly on Russia's border. So let's now review Meersheimer's argument of how the eastern expansion of NATO actually began. According to Professor Mearsheimer, as the Cold War came to a close, Soviet leaders preferred that US forces remain in Europe and NATO stay intact, an arrangement they thought would keep a reunified Germany pacified. However, the Russians believe the US and its NATO allies broke a key pledge by claiming the West promised Russia in the 1990s that NATO would not move one inch to the east. And the one-inch debate stems from an early conversation in 1990 between then U.S. Secretary of State James Baker and Soviet leader Mikhail Gorbachev. Naturally, the Soviets and their Russian successor state did not want NATO to expand further and assumed that Western diplomats understood their concerns. However, during the mid-1990s, the Clinton administration took advantage of a weakened Russia. The first round of enlargement occurred in 1999, accepting the Czech Republic, Hungary and Poland. The second round took place in 2004 and this included Bulgaria, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Romania, Slovakia and Slovenia. Inevitably, this led to bitter protests from Moscow. According to Mearsheimer's offensive realism theory, states form alliances in a multipolar world to balance powerful adversaries and enhance their security. However, in a unipolar world, states have fewer options to create an alliance as a way of counterbalancing a rival. And that's because in a unipolar world, the rationale for alliances is much weaker and the incentives among weaker members to free ride and draw the dominant power into situations where it has little or no vital interests are much stronger. And so as the Soviet Union collapsed, NATO expanded from 16 alliance members in 1991 to the present 29 and the organization decided to venture out of its safety zone the security rationale was perceived as a major threat to russian interests, but the russian state was too weak at the time to derail nato's eastward expansion but even at this stage nato expansion did not appear overly threatening because the new members did not share a direct border with russia except the smaller baltic countries But the situation changed significantly as NATO began moving further eastward into more dangerous territory. At its April 2008 summit in Bucharest, the alliance considered admitting Georgia and Ukraine. At the time, the second Bush administration supported the move, but the initiative faced opposition from France and Germany, fearing it would unduly antagonize their larger neighbor, Russia. Subsequently, NATO's members reached a compromise whereby the formal process leading to membership did not begin, but a statement was issued endorsing the aspirations of Georgia and Ukraine, stating clearly that these countries would become NATO members at a future point. President Putin maintained that admitting the two countries to NATO would represent a direct threat to Russia. So Russia's invasion of Georgia in August 2008 should have acted as a clear warning of Putin's determination to prevent Georgia and Ukraine from joining NATO. Furthermore, then-president of Georgia, Mikhail Saakashvili, who was deeply committed to bringing his country into NATO, had decided in the summer of 2008 to reincorporate two separate regions, Abkhazia and South Ossetia. Subsequently, Russian forces took control of the two regions in a short military conflict. Moscow had clearly made its point, yet despite this clear warning, NATO did not publicly abandon its goal of bringing Georgia and Ukraine into the alliance. Remarkably, though, NATO expansion continued unabated as Albania and Croatia became members in 2009. In addition, the EU has also been aggressively expanding eastward. In May 2008, it unveiled its Eastern Partnership Initiative, a program to foster prosperity in countries such as Ukraine and integrate them into the EU's economic influence. Unsurprisingly, Russian leaders viewed the plan as hostile to their own security interests. The West's final method of prying Kiev away from Moscow has been the use of the political dimension by US and European leaders in attempting to transform Ukraine into a Western stronghold on Russia's border, in particular the efforts of the United States and its allies to promote Western values and promote democracy in Ukraine and other post-Soviet states, a plan that often entails funding pro-Western individuals and organizations. Interestingly, Victoria Newland, then US Assistant Secretary of State for European and Eurasian Affairs, boasted in December 2013 that the United States had invested more than $5 billion since 1991 to help Ukraine achieve, quote, the future it deserves. Therefore, it's hardly surprising when Russian leaders examine the extent of Western social engineering in Ukraine, and they rightly worry that their country may be next. And in the next section I will briefly review the events of February 2014 to explain how the Ukraine crisis was kindled. The West's tripartite policy of NATO enlargement, EU expansion and democracy promotion essentially added combustion to a powder keg already waiting to ignite. The spark came in November 2013 when President Yanukovych rejected a major economic deal being negotiated with the EU and decided to accept a $15 billion Russian counter-offer instead. That decision gave rise to anti-government demonstrations that escalated over the next three months, and by mid-February had led to the deaths of approximately 100 protesters. Western negotiators were quickly dispatched to Kiev to resolve the crisis. On February 21st, the government and the opposition struck a deal that allowed Yanukovych to stay in power until new elections were held. The negotiations immediately fell apart and Yanukovych, fearing for his life, fled to Russia the next day. The new government in Kiev was pro-Western and anti-Russian, and it contained four high-ranking members who were affiliated to established neo-fascist movements. However, what is clear, though, is acceptance that Washington played a significant role in backing the coup. Victoria Newland and Senator John McCain actively participated in anti-government demonstrations. Indeed, John McCain was repeatedly photographed with Ole Tianibok, the leader of the right-wing Nationalist Party Svoboda, during a pro-European Union rally in Independence Square in Kiev on December 15, 2013. Also, Jeffrey Pyatt, the US ambassador to Ukraine, proclaimed afterwards about Yanukovych's toppling that it was, quote, a day for the history books. In addition, elite telephone Recording revealed that Newland had advocated regime change and wanted the Ukrainian politician Arseniy Yatsenyuk to become prime minister in the new government, which is exactly what happened. For President Putin, the decisive moment to act against Ukraine and the West had come, and shortly after February 22nd, he ordered Russian forces to take Crimea from Ukraine, incorporating it into Russia. The task proved relatively straightforward due to the heavy presence of Russian troops already stationed at a naval base in the Crimean port of Sevastopol. The Crimean population was also comprised of 60% ethnic Russians who were eager to exit Ukraine. Subsequently, President Putin put massive pressure on the new government in Kiev to discourage it from siding with the West against Moscow, making it clear that he would wreck Ukraine as a functioning state before allowing it to become a Western stronghold on Russia's doorstep. And this is exactly what has happened since the invasion of February 24, 2022, with sustained bombing campaigns designed to essentially pulverize the Ukrainian state. In addition, Vladimir Putin has provided advisors, arms and diplomatic support to the Donetsk People's Republic and the Lugansk People's Republic. Both separatist states officially recognize by Moscow at the outset of the invasion in February 2022. So how do we make sense of the realist argument advocated by Professor Mearsheimer and its strategic implications? President Putin's actions should be fairly easy to understand given the strategic importance of the Ukraine as a buffer state to Russia. Quite simply, no Russian leader would tolerate a military alliance that was, until recently, Moscow's sworn enemy moving into Ukraine. And similarly, no Russian leader could conceivably stand by while Western powers provided assistance in installing a government aimed at integrating Ukraine into the West. According to Professor Mearsheimer, Washington may not like Moscow's position, but the logic behind it is flawless. This is geopolitics, pure and simple, and great powers are always sensitive to potential threats near their home territory. And by the same token, the United States would never tolerate a rival Great power deploying military forces anywhere in the Western Hemisphere, much less on its borders. The only historical comparison in relation to the U.S. is the Cuban Missile Crisis of 1962. And let's consider for one moment the outrage in Washington if China were to build a formidable military alliance and attempted to include Canada and Mexico into it. And to make sense of why the West, especially the United States, failed to understand that its Ukraine policy was laying the groundwork for a disastrous clash with Russia, it's important to remember that political vulnerabilities, often in the domestic sphere, contribute to and exacerbate international tensions. This scenario is true for both Russia and the United States. Similarly, contrasting geopolitical perspectives are critical factors in shaping the overall security situation. And these internal vulnerabilities and differing perspectives serve to heighten insecurity, which are then reflected in exaggerated reactions to acts such as NATO expansion. While the Russian Federation is significantly different from the Soviet Union, the root causes of friction between great powers are relevant in understanding the dynamics between these two countries. Let's now take a closer look at both of these very significant issues, because ultimately they help to explain the underlying dilemma of security interests which are now playing out in the military conflict between Russia and Ukraine. John Mearsheimer refers to this as an interaction between peer rivals and although Russia is no longer a peer equal of the United States, nevertheless each side perceives the other to be a serious threat due to the intense rivalry between great powers and will take the necessary countermeasures to limit its adversary. The first vulnerability of Russia is its Geographic vulnerability. Both Russia and the United States hold distinct perspectives on security vulnerability arising from their unique geographic positions. Historically, the United States has been isolated by water and borders on weak, largely friendly states. However, Russia is a continental power vulnerable to land attack and in the past has suffered tremendous devastation from large, powerful neighbors such as Germany. Russia may have adopted aggressive policies towards many of the newly independent countries but this confrontation may be partly defensive based on a historical perception that spheres of influence and buffer zones are critical to defend the country's extensive borders and partly motivated by great power aspirations. NATO expansion hindered Russia's inherent outlook that eastern European states would act as a neutral zone between Russia and the US and its allies. From its great power perspective, Russia views the former Soviet republics as its own sphere of influence. For instance, Ukraine, Belarus and the Baltic states, Estonia, Latvia and Lithuania are central to Russian security regarding Europe. Three are members of NATO. One is aligned with Moscow, albeit tentatively, while the last and most important, Ukraine, has been at the centre of tensions with Europe and the United States. A neutral Ukraine serving as a buffer state might be acceptable to Moscow, but instead the West has used economic incentives, political support and possible membership in NATO to encourage Kiev to align with the US and Europe. Most policymakers in Washington fail to understand the seriousness with which Moscow views NATO enlargement, and specifically the possibility of Ukraine's admission to the alliance, because the United States has never faced similar land-based challenges to its security. And a second vulnerability is Russia's lack of European allies. With so few reliable allies in Europe, any attempt to erode NATO unity represents a primary goal to boost Russian security. For instance, the deployment of additional NATO forces in northern Europe has led Russia to prioritize its foreign policy and defense relationship with Belarus, one of the last authoritarian states in Europe, and a questionable ally at best. Belarus and Russia are part of a union state between the two countries based on mutual cooperation. So let's turn our attention to the second issue concerning the dilemma of security interests, namely geopolitical perspectives. More specifically, Russia's use of alliance politics. As mentioned previously, Russia's isolated position has led the Kremlin to pursue closer ties with so-called rogue regimes, including Syria, Iran and Venezuela. These states are hostile to America and can be counted on to support Russian initiatives. These bilateral relationships are not alliances but they do allow Moscow to exercise influence beyond Russia's immediate borders. Moscow's support for these regimes complicates American foreign policy and reinforces the perception of Russia as a pariah state in global politics. To the east, Russia has discovered a far more important partner in China. Much of Russia's pivot towards Asia can be explained by, firstly, the hostile European environment, second, Russia's interest in constraining American power, and thirdly, the need to legitimize Kremlin rule by affirming Russia's great power status. On virtually all indicators, the United States remains the world's most powerful country, But China ranks second on many measures. Russia is the equal of the United States based on nuclear weapons. However, on all other dimensions, especially economic and demographic, it operates from a position of weakness. Russia's strategic partnership with China is clearly directed against the United States and presents significant challenges to Washington. In addition to its vital partnership with China, Russia is hedging in Asia by developing ties with India, Japan, South Korea, Pakistan and the Association of Southeast Asian Nations. The Russian viewpoint asserts that the international order is definitely changing and the West is losing its dominance in global affairs. Since the United States failed to subordinate Russia and China as junior partners within the liberal international order, it is now returning to a policy of containment, trying to force countries to take sides in their new bipolar order. And this has been witnessed during the current ukraine war as the the us attempts to convince traditionally non-aligned countries to impose further sanctions on the russian economy the united states considers russia as a rejuvenated malign force in the indo-pacific region one that is using economic diplomatic and military instruments to re-establish presence and influence lost after the collapse of communism in addition russia frequently collaborates with China to oppose the United States in the UN Security Council, promoting a multilateral world order that will weaken the United States and reduce its global influence. However, the United States remains dominant in global politics due largely to the system of alliances established in the Indo-Pacific region and through an enlarged NATO in Europe. Alliances are One means by which states augment their power, but the current alliance structure favors only the United States. Russia is severely disadvantaged in this regard. The United States is in a far stronger position despite recent tensions with NATO over burden-sharing, etc., and uncertainty regarding the U.S. willingness to defend small and distant members of the alliance. Moscow perceives NATO as a security threat, or at least claims to, and not... Without reason, Russia cannot balance NATO and the United States through an equal alliance as it once did during the Cold War and so must resort to asymmetric measures that are threatening to NATO's small Eastern European members. Actions on both sides feed into the dilemma of security interests. So let's wrap up now with some concluding remarks. First, the explanations offered by Professors Mearsheimer and Cohen regarding Russia's intervention in Ukraine serve as a timely reminder of the value behind the realist school of thought, even more so given the changes over the last two decades marking the end of the Cold War. By emphasizing that Ukraine was pushed too hard by Western countries, thus alienating Russia and provoking its response, these scholars appear to be silent voices when advocating the enduring relevance of great power politics, and equally the insignificance of smaller states in global affairs. In other words, for Mearsheimer and Cohen, the, the key point is is what Russia thinks about Ukraine rather than what Ukraine as a sovereign nation wants. Second, contrary to the Western view, NATO enlargement clearly represents a direct military threat to Russia, as US military bases under the guise of the NATO alliance came ever closer to Russia's borders. Moreover, enlargement also exposed Russian weakness in terms of the elimination of a vast historical buffer zone. It demonstrated Russia's inability to control events along its borders and resulted in dismissing Russia's interests as a great power. NATO's involvement in the Balkans and U.S. efforts to secure alliance membership for Georgia and Ukraine was always going to be perceived by Moscow as an existential threat deemed to be offensive in nature and directed against vital Russian interests, resulting in the Kremlin's use of military force against both countries. Third, geographical vulnerability combined with the deployment of American anti-ballistic missile systems in Eastern Europe led Russia to develop new strategic weapons aimed at negating American missile defense systems. Also, two decades of military budget increases under President Putin, which led to conventional and nuclear modernization, can be explained as a defensive strategy against NATO's eastward expansion, and also as a self-sufficiency measure, in, in other words, simply catching up after the massive declines of the 1990s. Successive US administrations have interpreted these Russian uh, strategic advances as aggressive and have greatly accelerated America's nuclear program while also renouncing arms control agreements leading to further mistrust. Fourth, U.S. support for the various color revolutions and Russia's white revolution would not normally be considered a military threat, but Russia deemed the concept of popular uprisings to be an existential threat and also to the authoritarian regime of Vladimir Putin. So how can the two countries dampen the heightened security situation? First, an obvious starting point would be to increase diplomatic and military-to-military communication and to have more frequent consultations within the NATO-Russia Council to improve trust and reduce the possibility of an accidental engagement. However, bilateral relations have plummeted to a new low given the imposition of personal sanctions against leaders on both sides. Second, reaching a settlement on Ukraine would be a major step forward. One possibility would be to grant some form of autonomy to Donetsk and Lugansk in exchange for an end to hostilities and territorial and security guarantees for Kiev. Treating Ukraine as a de facto buffer zone between Russia and Europe may be controversial, but a solution along these lines could reassure Russia and lower tensions. Such an arrangement would likely involve taking NATO membership off the table permanently for Ukraine and for Georgia. Also addressing the dilemma of security interests suggests treating Russia with the respect deserving of a great power. This may lower tensions and lay the groundwork for more substantive agreements to follow. The US should also recognize that Russia has genuine security concerns regarding NATO expansion and a push for democracy promotion in the former republics. The key point is to reduce uncertainty and mistrust, which could lead to unintentional consequences, thereby escalating the conflict. In some respects, the Ukraine military conflict represents a harsh geopolitical jolt, a reminder that hard power never really goes away. And no matter how much we may wish it was the case, the role of force remains formidable when it comes to settling borders and changing regimes. And that's all we have time for in today's episode. Many thanks for listening to Good Morning Canada. I really appreciated your company today. And as always, I'll see you next time, Wednesdays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 noon Eastern. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Good Morning Canada. Please join NAVC and M for another great program next Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific time and 12 noon Eastern time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you soon.